Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Business Hangover with Nikki and Sarah, where why does business have to always be so serious? We take a light-hearted look at really serious topics that make you a better leader, better person and run your teams and organisations for the future. Hi listeners, it's Sarah here and I'm doing the show on my own this week because we've had some uh, very sad news. Nikki's father passed away this week after a long illness and we wish her all the best and all the love. I'm interviewing today one of the most incredible men I've met in my life and that's not because he's my brother but he always does it with an incredible sense of authenticity and kindness. Uh, Matthew Godfrey's Rise in the advertising and startup corporate journey. And it's really quite amazing. So at the moment, Matthew is the CEO of Nutrition Innovation. And that's a food technology company that empowers the global ingredients industry worldwide, obviously, to produce healthier food and beverages through sugar reduction strategies and bioactive natural compounds. So really what that means is they're trying to make sugar healthier, which is an incredible way of looking at global health. Nutrition Innovation has been awarded, and here we go, Top 10 Startup by F1 Europe 2017, Best New Ingredient by the World Food Awards and the Asia Food Innovation Awards 2019, Global Agri-Food Tech Winner by Slingshot 2019, one of Singapore's Top 20 Startups in 2019, and part of the Global Food Tech 500 in both 2019 and 2020. And this is a startup, guys. It hasn't been going that long. But here it goes more. Prior to joining Nutrition Innovation, Matthew was the president of Y&R Asia, which is a huge advertising marketing organisation. And he oversaw the operations throughout the region for Y&R Advertising, VML and Lab Store, with a total of around 2,000 people, 38 offices in 13 countries. And here goes a list of how brilliant this man is as a businessman. In 2009-13, 14 and 15, he was a finalist for campaigns APAC, CEO of the Year, as well as Marketing Agency's Professional of the Year, and was voted by the industry as one of campaign's admired leaders in Asia Pacific. How about that? In, and he's my younger brother, so you can imagine, you know, it's not much to look up to. <laughs> in 2015, he was named by Umbrella as winner of the Asia Pacific CEO of the Year. Um, Some of his amazing achievements are under his leadership that the agency became the 2014 China Agency of the Year, as well as the 2014 and 15 Southeast Asia Agency of the Year. I mean, this is amazing creds, isn't it, guys? YNR was also a finalist for APAC Network of the Year in 2013, 14 and 15 under his leadership. Also in 2015, VML was awarded Indonesia's Digital Agency of the Year and YNR Singapore Agency of the Year. This is, you know, what he just does for his daily job. YNR China has also been the number one agency in Cairns from China in 2013, 2014 and 2015. I mean, really seriously. I mean, who has that kind of <laughs> resume at his age? So, uh 
He's an incredibly inspiring man. He is great. He's absolutely a mentor for me. I always check in when I have a business idea or I'm thinking of anything um, new new concepts. I uh, just want to actually pick his brains because he has such a huge wealth of information about leadership, about business, about startups, and just about being a good person in often industries that can test your values and your purpose. So without any more um, accolades to read at this point in time, but I'm sure there will be, Matt, in future, I welcome Matthew Godfrey to The Business Hangover. I think podcast is over. It's been great. Thank you. Oh, okay. Too funny. So, yeah, actually, that's your fault for having so many creds behind your name, not mine. So, Matt, how is it in Singers at the moment? Uh, it's great. Um, it's a it's a beautiful day. It's summer every day. So unlike cold Melbourne winter, we're we're toasty in t-shirts. So it's all good. Are you missing our lovely wintry days uh, here in Australia while you're sunbathing in that thirty degrees heat? Um, not so much. I mean, I, I quite I quite love living in Quetta. It's it's um, but then again, there's if you head up to Dinner Plain and get the the fire out and. Get a glass of red and, and uh, you know, get a, a rack of lamb out there at times when there's a bit of cold, it's all good. <laughs> I know what you're, my, my brother is referring to uh, some lovely times we've spent up at a, a place at Dinner Plain that we have since sold. But, um, yeah, there were some really good memories there and a fair amount of wine drinking, if I recall. <laughs> Indeed. So, Matt, let's not be shy. You've had an incredible career. What is the secret sauce? I mean, why have you had kind of that weird little Midas touch we tease you about with business? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I think most people who, who – um, I think there's a good Venn diagram out there, which is, which is the three bubbles of do what you love, what you're good at, and what you're paid to do. And, and I think if you, if you – most people end up doing – uh, uh, what they're good at, what they're paid to do, and that's a struggle. Then that, that just that two overlapping is a struggle, in, in that you're not being able to put all your passion into it. But if you if you're lucky enough to to fit all three, do, do what you love, do what you're paid to do, and what you're good at, then actually that's where success comes from, and and therefore it doesn't seem like hard work because it's it's all of it is a bit of a gift. Yeah, I mean, you and I have both been pretty lucky in the fact that we've been able to make successful careers doing what we love and getting a real buzz out of um, seeing how far we can go or how creative we can be in our line of fields. But not everyone's that lucky and there must be um, some kind of magical combination that you think we need to think about or at least implement if we want to have that trifecta of passion, purpose and success. Yeah, I think I think most people start with the with the with the wrong end. They 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 come out of university or they come out of out of school and they end up getting a job and it's not what they love, but they follow that and there's uh, there's a path to that. And they 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 get they they get money, they get paid, they get they get debts, uh, and they never get out of of that of that track. I think what you described is you you spent some time trying to find what you love, um, and you followed that path, and because you followed that path, you ended up figuring out how to, how to 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 make money out of it, but. It, it wasn't the other way around. So I think if you, if you get off on the wrong foot or you start for the wrong reasons or have the wrong motivations, it's hard to track back because uh, the more, uh, I think, commitments or more uh, infrastructure you build around you, it's always harder to make the leap, leap right or left at that point. Yeah, there seems to be um, a kind of dual purpose when we hit the 
working career part of our lives and one is this drive to accumulate wealth and money and we want to be really hyper successful in our 20s and the other is um, trying to find out what we love and it may take you know a decade or so before we realize what we love to do and also what we are good at as a combination and I remember um, you know back in the day uh, that when I started it wasn't so much about money it was about um, helping people and um, you know I cut my cost to be competitive I think I was charging $50 an hour back then um, to be able to get into the place where I could service people and make a difference in their lives and I think that kind of altruistic way of looking at work really helped me become a really healthy stable successful business to the point that um of the clinic that I have now. Yeah, it's also about building your personal brand. And and um, uh, if you can come out of the gate and you've got a personal brand that people will trust and and uh, commit to, you could probably charge that 200 300 400 But But at that stage, you're also building your reputation and building trust in other people. And so, so you might have the capabilities and you might have the skills and the confidence, but, but other people have to see that in you. So that, that hard work you talked about, that grit you talked about, is actually you building the... the the equity your own brand so then you can leverage it later down the track and so it's putting the time in but the time for not time's sake it's it's building equity in in the value that you have in the organization or in the in the marketplace what do you think is the the most important thing you learned being a high-flying CEO traveling the world um, that you can tell our listeners that might uh, inspire them a little bit I'm not sure I learned that much actually I'm still learning um, <laughs> I think I think the first thing is, is is being a CEO is 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 when you're starting up and, and um, working up you always think you it's more command and control uh, you might have watched TV programs or, or movies about CEOs and they seem to be be able to command and control everything but then if you work in a large organization and there's 2,000 employees, um, you, you work out quickly that this is not the army here and that people will act off brief um, and that you can't instruct anybody to do anything because they have minds of their own, they have commitments of their own, and if they don't like what you they hear, they can just leave. And so, which is difficult to do if you're in the army, you can't just pop out any time you like. <laughs> but yeah, but unfortunately, this thing, this thing we've got to call the free marketplace, people can just leave. And so... Um, actually, the, the 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 what we all tried to learn as we moved along, trying to trying to organize um, uh, groups of people, is not how to command people and and uh, this this idea of uh, you know the alpha male type CEO is is not really what was required. It was trying to collaborate and partnership and build affinity with people in order to achieve a group collective about what everybody wanted to, to get to and not um, sort of be driven by your individual ego because that I, I don't think um, delivered success. What I think delivered success is partnerships with all levels, uh, the global organization, the network, but also individuals in the organization to achieve goals. So um, I, found it, I found it more collaborative than, than um, directional was required. So what do you think – where we're at right now do you think there's going to be a swing back to 
you know, old patriarchal style of leadership, that very macho controlling level? Or do you think we've turned a corner and um, what we're seeing now is a far more realistic, collaborative um, and inclusive form of CEO leadership and management style? Um, I, I think I think there was this uh, a swing back. I mean, we can just talk politics for a while, I think. I think if if you look at 2016 through to 2018, 19, there was this real move towards um, authoritarianism, and that uh, politicians were being uh, dominant and had to be deciders again, and almost back to that George Bush style: uh, you're either with us or against us. And I, and I think the the world is rallying against that again, and and saw that and and didn't like that, and as moving more towards back to this, this place, which is yeah, actually this almost demigod-style dictatorship of management actually isn't what we need. What we need is is more voices at the table. We need more collaboration and empathy at the table. And so I strongly think while we'll kind of bounce back and forth, I strongly think that that um, empathy as a guiding force for, for management and collaboration as a guiding force of management is ultimately will we'll win out on, along the day. And that doesn't that doesn't mean leaders shouldn't have clarity of thought and shouldn't have clarity of vision and have clarity of direction. Um, they shouldn't be wishy-washy anyway and just go, "What do you think?" But but they they need they need to be they need to be in, uh, um, bring bring the community with them and bring everybody with them and 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 not be divisive. I think that's my view. There's um this exercise I use a lot with coaching that somebody gave me um few years ago and it's, it's called the boardroom exercise a lot of you out there might already know it but the idea is to work out who's on your mental boardroom but I think we can do this literally as well so the important part of the exercise is who is not sitting at the table who doesn't have a chair and they are your stakeholders who probably have the best and most important information you need about making decisions where to go next and what's happening at the ground level or out there in the consumer world um, and I find that uh, finding the voice of our employees, our staff, our stakeholders is is a really important part of being collaborative. And there seems to have been a bit of a fear about that, nearly like we'll be shown up as not being, you know, the expert if we ask others for their advice, their thoughts and their creative ideas. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, and, and now to, just to balance that, I, I think also... Um, at some point, you you also need to call call an end of debate to make decisions move forward, mm. and and I think there's there's another learning. There's no perfect decision, um, and, and I, I had a, a good CEO one time who who would who would always say, you know, a good plan today is better than a perfect plan tomorrow. I am so going to use that. I love that. And yeah, it was, it's, it's it's true as well. And you can, um, I mean, and Facebook have repositioned this on with you know more trendy, you know, move fast and break things. And so this idea of being disruptive and this idea of being always in mode of beta, always trying new things means that some of it's not going to work and some of it's going to actually be mistakes. And you've got to be comfortable with that. So debate, collaboration, decisions move forward with confidence and move forward with speed, but also um, not be under an illusion that that forward direction is going to be with perfection and embrace Embrace the errors, and I think um, even even you know you read anything by Steve Branson, Steve Jobs, any of these these leaders, they'll, they'll talk about it. it's their failures that actually educated the most. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so I, I think it's it's also harder the 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 you go up the 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 decision tree, and there's this there's a sense that the more senior you get, the the less failures you should make. But but actually, I, I think that 
there there is almost a almost a, a bit you've got to flip it and say well actually the the decisions that that are being made at at the boardroom level um they're important to the future of the company sometimes they've never been done before sometimes you're going to new areas and new innovations and there is risk uh, and so it's all about managing i think the organization's risk tolerance and zero is is a is a bad thing you will you'll never progress too much and obviously um you can get systemic risk and systemic failures in the company. So it's finding that balance of the organization to take enough that you're going to, um, yeah, create new territory, create new grounds and win. Yeah, Nikki and I talk a fair bit about um, failure funds and embracing uh, failure. And I think we need to kind of make it, you know, the new go-to. Like if you haven't failed, you won't get hired because um, it teaches us so much. And success just tells us what we're good at, but failure tells us um, how we got to be good at it. Yeah, I, I think so. There's this other factor which I talk a lot with human skills which is um, considered risk or positive risk Um, and that's the idea of engaging in the unknown and the unpredictable and a bit of the chaos but by taking risks which you have considered some level of cause and effect but not so much that you're getting stuck you know and it's going through one meeting and then another meeting and then we have meetings on the meetings that we had and then a further meeting so considered risk is about a more spontaneous fast decision making um which i think we really need moving forward yeah no i, th- I think that's that's it's at all levels and on and with all people and, and that's why i think it's it's actually you know again um you know the the making no decision is actually a bigger risk and staying still i mean if if, if you're an either as an individual or a, an organization if you're staying still then you're effectively moving backwards um, and that might have been okay in in the in the maybe ten years ago, fifteen years ago, when technology and society wasn't changing quick. And actually, you could stay still for maybe two years and, and not see too much of a of your competitors overtake you. But the but the pace of evolution of business, technology, economies um, is so fast now that standing still as an organization for one year um, can be death. And and so I, therefore, moving quickly is is a bigger business imperative now than it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Here's a bit of food for thought. Do you think we're in a trend? You know, um, I'm certainly old enough to see trends come and go. And, uh, you know, I've seen the 80s take a resurgence, which is both very exhilarating and, and highly embarrassing. And, and you've witnessed my, my 80s uh, journey. So uh, no more comments on that, please. But I'm wondering, are we seeing a cycle um, of moving out of that kind of narcissistic, um, egocentric form of business that hit the 80s and moving into uh, another cycle, which is more compassionate, but but taking from the 80s that fast, quick, decision-making, decisive way of doing business. You're very embracing trends. Um, <laughs> uh, I'd tumble for you. The um, <laughs> Oh, come on. What's wrong with Boy George and a few dreadlocks? Come on. Now, um, no, I, I think, I, think um, I, I don't think this will necessarily be cyclical. I, I think it's only accelerating and, and, and kind of here's why. The, the first piece is, is the flow of information um, around networks. And networks can be between a company, between individuals, between cities and countries. Um, that flow of information is, has accelerated well beyond where it was in the 80s, 90s and, and won't stop. And it'll only move quicker from here. So, so speed of information is, has been unleashed 
Um, and it will not be put in a box again. It's, it's almost impossible to do that. Two, in terms of the amount of input you have or amount of potential access to ideas you have, all that information comes with, with thoughts, suggestions, opinions. And if you don't act upon them very quickly, there, there is actually a, a, an issue at overload and that there's too much input and too much information. And so therefore, you have to fight this balance between the speed of data coming in and the volume of data coming in. And, and therefore, if you want to then slow, slow it all down again, put the brakes on, uh, it's, it's really problematic, I think, over the next five, 10 years, because the, the macro changes in the way we do business, the way we share information, and the way we network our, our, our organizations um, have changed exponentially and are not going back again. And so therefore, I don't think we'll see a return to, to sort of, you know, a, a, a kind of quaint 50s, 60s style I think we'll we'll actually be more pressured, more time intensive. The boundaries between work and play or work and life balance will be forever blurred. And, you know, with the exceptions of regulations in places like Germany where they're trying to pull them apart, the intensity on time on people will be higher than ever over the next 10, 15 years. And therefore, you won't have the luxury of, of spending time on things and making decisions. You'll have to decide quickly and move forward because if not, your competitors will. kind of sounds like what you're saying is uh, there's no retirement ahead of us, no yachts uh, beckoning us that um, to be in the business world means it's ever-changing, ever-growing and... Um there's no time for sitting back and relaxing. <laughs> I think I think retirement is 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 an illusion. I, I think I think you can you can you can retire from an industry. You can retire from from a gig. Um, you can't retire from being productive, and you can't retire from um, challenging your mind. And so so whether you have to work for the man for the rest of your life, or whether you uh, need to stay in a particular role or industry, I, I don't think that's the case. But but I don't think we I don't think I don't think we're we're meant to just sit on the beach. Um, I, I'm not sure that's that's probably the best thing to do. But there are there are thousands of things you could potentially do which challenge yourself, which have nothing to do with climbing the corporate ladder. I think this kind of idea of of you get this bubble where you work and then retirement is this this blissful thing. Uh, I'm not sure that's particularly healthy, and I think I think people should be looking for continual challengement between now to forever I think it always just boils down to having purpose doesn't it in some kind of way that you know if we drift we um, land in a world of unhappy hurts so having purpose and knowing why we're in business why we need to adapt why we have to move fast why we have to embrace what technology is going to offer and what the world's uh, going to hand us um, yeah absolutely unpredictably and often not with a lot of joy but uh, purpose seems to drive uh, I think for me why I get up in the morning and enjoy my job and can be prepared and resilient enough to change and adapt. So here's a, a different tangent. I'm really interested in you sharing um, why the jump from being in a you know highfalutin um, corporate advertising world um, in a CEO structure to a startup? Because when you told me about this, like I could I could feel anxious about leaving behind that amazing uh, position you had, the career that you had generated, and taking this incredible leap into the startup world where there are no um, there's no trampoline to bounce off. There's no safety nets. 
you know there's no um lovely cushions it's a harsh world um and i'm fascinated for you to share what drove you to do that um so so i think it's it's why the jump is all about challenges and so so um uh if you've if you've had a, a certain career and you've achieved certain goals um you can keep doing that but again mentally it 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 becomes um, less motivating, less exciting. You get less adrenaline. You get you get less of the thrill of the rush. Um, and so, so this piece that you you brought up earlier, what are you learning? You, you stop learning, um, and you become the become the guy in the corner or the girl in the corner, which is which is oh yeah, we we tried that in 1987, it didn't work, or we tried that in 1996, we didn't work, or we tried that in 2006, it didn't work. And and you really want to be on on the. I think on the edge of your capabilities or edge of your knowledge and always kind of pushing yourself to, to, to learn that bit more or discover more about yourself. So I think stepping out of your comfort zone and doing something incredibly new um, is, is incredibly challenging, but, but an aphrodisiac, it just brings you alive. It's fantastic. So that's, that's the fun bit of it all. The, the, the difference between um, living in a, um, a corporate world and, and the startup world is this, this, this conflict or this this difficult um, to to solve resolution between resources and independence, um, and in, in the in the corporate world that you've got um, resources which you take for granted, um, uh, network systems, tools, I, uh, I uh, you know uh, people to manage cash flow, people to manage um, uh, everything from uh, new business pipeline through to um, how the how the office gets sorted out in the evening. So everything has got a system in place for it, and that's been developed over a period of time. And you, you kind of take it for granted that's there. You might not like it all the time, and you might complain about it, but but it's there, and, and it cocoons you. Um, and then you step out of that. Um, or the problem then, obviously, is when you want to make a decision to change that. Uh, the the red tape is is is, uh, is there, and then you've got to get cultural change. Even if you can change it, you've got to get two thousand people to decide to do new things. That also could be challenging. Um, in any startup or any collaboration company or any anything that's you, you're you're trying to get off the ground, you have a complete white space. You have freedom to do what you want. You have no rules. Uh, nobody telling you what not to do. Um, but at the same time, where's the infrastructure and support? Um, and uh, uh, you, you've, you've got to be prepared, as, as, uh, as, uh, as it's commonly referred to, you've got to be prepared to sweep the floors. Um, so at one stage, you're, you're, you're presenting to some of the biggest customers in the world, getting them excited about what you're doing, and you're, you're pushing out into Europe to try and launch products. And the next time, you're, you're, you're kind of right at the other end and, and uh, you know, tr- trying to order things for the, for the office or, or try to sort out some, some uh, packing of some ingredients because they got lost in transport. And so, so you've got to take the good, the bad with the ugly. And it also is a good humbling experience because you, you've got to see all ends of the business um, and whereas you're, when you're a CEO, you might only see that, that one scale of the business. You might not see it all perspective. So for, for me, it's been really refreshing to, to, to get this complete overview of, of the company from ground up. So which do you prefer? Or are they two very similar but different beasts that um, you've just really loved getting your teeth into? I, I think everybody should do both. And, I, and I, think, I think you can do it either way. But I'm not sure this is a good stats, but I'll say it because hopefully it's true. And the more often you say things, it's probably going to be true. <laughs> well, if you say it's true, it certainly um, is. Yeah. Um, but, but I think most successful um, entrepreneurial startups are actually headed by people who are 45 and up. And I, and I think part of that is is because they cut their teeth somewhere. 
and and they've they've kind of made those mistakes somewhere else and learned through experience what are the levers to pull when you get into a, into a problem and i think that's very 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 useful on the other hand i, I would i would also hesitate to guess that some of the best CEOs have actually started their own companies. And so if you think of, again, you know, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, these people are successful entrepreneurs and they run great companies. And so I think they've got a strong view of how the company should operate, what happens at every level, how to manage risk, how to take bets and win. And I think people who have only done one of those things, either all corporate or startup, don't really get that balanced view of how to appreciate both sides of this perspective. So I would say that everybody should do both because I think it makes you a, a better leader in the end. Look, I'm going to agree with you, uh, brother of such wisdom. I think the um, the thing that struck me last night at a dinner with a bunch of uh, great women, uh, they're business people, they own restaurants, they um, work in education, they have their own brand, they're um, really gifted business women um, and great friends. But the thing we were talking about is all of us started our working career in retail and how important that experience was. Yeah, I, I agree. And I know yeah. there's a lot of kind of negativity about or dumbing down about, you know, the skills needed for retail. But the human skills you learn by being in that grunt and grind and that gritty place of selling to the customers, I think sets people up for a world of knowledge that will come in incredibly useful further down the track, whether you go into a corporate management field or start your own business. What's your thoughts? I mean, I, I think um, uh, retail is, is a, a rapid education of, of how to adjust your, your sales proposal to fit with customer dynamics on the fly. So you think a lot about what companies do to, to understand what consumer segment is, what is the right sales message, what is the right positioning. They might spend thousands of dollars and, and months trying to work this out. But in retail, if you're meeting a customer, you've got to do it instantly. Yeah. And, and everything from, can I help you? And bugger off to... to <laughs> Um, I've got to sort out this person because they've got a, they get a dinner tonight and they want to look their best and they want to look at something. You know, it, you've really got to manage them very quickly and you've got to think on the fly to, 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 to say, look, how do I solve their problem so that actually our company can make money? And I, and I think it's um, nerve-wracking as well because it's just you and the customer and there's nothing in between. And it's also desperately random because you never know who's going to walk through that door. So You're right, Matt. I think uh, we look... Um too narrow-mindedly at the retail skills and I know um, that's where I learned how to deal with people it's where I became fascinated by people and how they would bring their stuff to the table even if it was over you know a, a box of Kellogg's cornflakes or over a you know $400 dress the fascination of people grew in my customer service but it really does teach you all about management and and I love the idea of thinking on the fly because that's what you have to do you can't run out the back and look at a, you know a how-to handbook you've got to think and you've got to make quick decisions and you've got to make the right decisions because you're very accountable in that retail industry both from a consumer perspective but also from the organization you're working yeah, um, I, I think all those those experiences um, are absolutely essential to to I think of making mistakes on other people's money. <laughs> I don't mind um, that. <laughs> I don't mind. And that's not a, not necessarily a bad thing, but but let, let's let's say it's it's, it's actually um, uh, you know it's problematic in, in certainly in, in Singapore where I live, where if young people who who scrape together you know all the money they have and they put it into a business and within you know, anywhere between six months and 12 months, you know, that, that business has gone down, they've lost their money and they've got to start again. 
And so, so learning the what not to do on your own dime as a young entrepreneur can be a very expensive exercise because you're, you're losing, might not be a lot of money, but it's all you have. This idea to learn how to cut your teeth in, on somebody else's dime in a good organization which can teach you the right skills is actually de-risking your future as an entrepreneur. And allowing you to, to say, well, actually, I've, I've, um, I've got some better ideas what not to do. I had um, uh, one employee in, in China who was absolutely, absolutely brilliant. She was um, nominated at one stage to be the, one of the top 40 people under the age of 30 in, in Asia Pacific. And she, she rose, she was so talented, she rose through the ranks to the country manager of China very quickly. But the problem was she had lots of natural talent, but she didn't have any experience. And so suddenly she came up against all these problems, everything from difficult customers to acquisitions to changing dynamics in the marketplace. And she didn't have enough skills to, to deal with that. So she had the talent, but she didn't have the experience. And she said, what do I have to do? I said, you just have to kind of go through problems. You're going to have to go through the through the, the hell of all these issues because on the other side of it, you're going to be awesome. You're going to be 10 times better than anybody else because you got the talent and you got the experience. And it's, ha- it's hard to shortcut that experience. It's hard to read it from a book. It's hard to sort of just try and get it from a from a YouTube course, you, you really almost need to be confronted with it and, and find your own way to battle through those things. And then you come out almost bulletproof. Yeah, you're so right on that. I can't even tell you how many people I have seen in my professional world who are really clever people. Like they're just outstanding in their area and they have amazing ideas, but they are not business people. They've kind of skipped the the foundation the platform that allows them to bounce that idea and concept into a long-lasting sustainable business and that's when they crash and burn you know 18 months in three years in even five years in they're stalling and stale and they are exhausted because they haven't got a good conceptualization about business and it's one of those things you're right you can't go and do it in a course you you've got to be out there putting theory into practice and that means you know fail doing the wrong thing maybe getting the sack but it's all great learning at the end isn't it yeah there's there's some um uh, depressing stats on that so i think um one one out of ten one out of ten businesses just new businesses fail anyway so 90 percent good idea bad idea 90 percent go down the tubes but but then um in the startup community there's the, the the venture capital world where you pitch your idea to the experts the the geniuses of the world who are backed with money who have the, spent all their time assessing whether you have the talent or the idea to, to go forward and they, that's all they do all around the world and when you've reached that stage only only three out of ten companies succeed even with the leading category experts of venture capitalists who's nothing else to do but to judge whether your idea is good and whether you've got the right business plan even then they only take you from one out of ten to three out of ten. Getting good ideas, getting good businesses off, off the off the ground, uh, I think are not about the idea and not about um, whether you've got the capital for the idea. It, it's about whether you've got the determination to see the idea through and whether you've got the lateral thinking skills to adjust to business problems which are going to come through. Because any idea you have is built in a vacuum. You don't know what's going to happen in the market and you don't know how your competitors are going to fight back. And you don't even know what somebody else is doing in a warehouse next door to you that's going to come out in a year time to battle you. So you, if your business plan is locked in and you know exactly what it is, I guarantee you'll almost fail. Lock in your business plan, have a clear vision, but be prepared to adapt 24-7 to changing market conditions on the fly. Otherwise, you won't get through that first three or four, five-year period. Just because, uh, particularly with disruption, um, one of the things is, is you know, the disruptive idea could be good, but actually the industry fights back. 
Um, it's not like the industry you're battling into and the competitors you're battling into go, well, stand back and say, you can have it all. They've got more money, they've got more time, they've got resources, they've got more to lose. And so rather than embrace you and cheer you on, they tend to do everything in their power to either block you or copy you or both. And so be prepared that it's going to be a struggle, it's going to be a fight. And that resilience, that determination uh, and that grit and that able to get up to the next customer and keep talking is some of the basics you learn at retail because um, you can't stop that. One of the great things about retail is, you know, if, if it closed at Friday night at 9 p.m., you, you kept going until then. There was no, <laughs> there was nothing else. Oh, Matt, you've just given me nightmares about those 12-hour shifts standing there endlessly, even if there was no one in the whole of the uh, store. <laughs> There was no way out yet to stand there, grin at them, and look as if this was the best job you ever had. <laughs> yeah, nothing coming through. Um, nothing coming through. And uh, yeah, you you gotta you gotta put up with it. And and also, you know, <clears throat> the other thing is celebrate wins. I I think um the the troughs are very low, but the but the highs can be very high. So milestones, one of the things the leader can do is, is milestones are very important. It's easy that everybody's so busy doing what they're doing, they forget to look back when they've won. And so creating the opportunity to see those milestones, to see the ability to have made a step forward. So you kind of know you're on the right path and you're enjoying those moments amongst the, um, you know, the battle that is going on to, to build a business is important too. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm a big one for for helping people see the tiny wins they have. Sometimes we only see wins by the, you know, the zeros in our bank account or yeah. by um, the amount of followers we have on our Instagram, whatever it is. But it's the small wins, you know, it's those small steps that show we're on the right path and good on you for, for getting up today and knuckling down and in spite of adversity, hammering through until you can get that win and it grows and it grows and it grows. I really agree with that. We've uh, covered a fair amount of ground now, haven't we? Look, um, I'm wondering if you'd like to tell me a little bit more and our listeners who I think will be fascinated about the startup that you're involved in um, because it's it's a global health um, game changer as far as how we have a relationship with our foods, how we process our foods and how we link our well-being back to a more natural way of looking at uh, what we consume yeah and credit where credit's due none of them are my ideas so let's be let's be clear here none of them are my ideas um so I, i'm i'm uh i'm working with two founders who are a bona fide genius the geniuses they're both melbourne-based scientists one's a doctor of uh, of uh clinical pharmacology uh dr david canara one's a, a doctor of cardiology which is uh, dr greg zito and they treat the world as a food as medicine point of view so so they look at at and many of the world's diseases, obesity, diabetes, even heart problems, anti-anxiety, and, and looked at sort of some of the causes for, 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 for those problems. And a lot of them are based in nutrition and food and they have consequences. And there's two things. You could kind of add more chemicals in and more drugs in to, to solve those problems. Or you could say, well, what's wrong with the food we eat? And can we actually cure some of these things? Can we help some of these things by treating food as medicine? So our organization looks at... at um, Things like sugar, sugar reduction, we look like anti-diabetes, obesity, and, and really help the industry make better processing technology to make things naturally healthier um, by looking into, into what plants have and working with the bioactive compounds to, to help us live better. So for example, one small example, 
is is buried within sugarcane. Um, and again, sugar is at the heart of the, the diabetes and obesity debate, buried in, bigger in the sugarcane plant itself, uh, and, and natural antioxidants and polyphenols, which slow down metabolism of, of sucrose. So, so if you, if you eat these natural antioxidants, they actually slow down how much sugar can go in your bloodstream. And they're a natural part of the, part of the plant and they've been there for centuries. Um, however, for the last, however, the last 200 years, the world has said, well, we don't need those. What we need to have is fully refined white sugar. We should take all those antioxidants and we should put them out to fertilizer. And so the, the entire industry is designed to remove these natural compounds and sometimes fertilizer, sometimes animal feed. Um, and so a really simple observation is, well, well, why do you do that? Why couldn't you leave them in the sugar? Because if you did, those benefits would, would, would flow through to people. Um, and that would flow through to, to lower incidences of diabetes, lower incidences of obesity, just by keeping the plant more natural. Um, and a, a very loose analogy is, is a is a, an apple is about ten percent sugar, and and we we wouldn't see an apple as bad as being a can of you know cola, even though they're both about ten percent sugar, because that the apple is naturally complex. The sugar is contained in natural fibers, which are slow to digest. They don't rise up in in your blood sugar levels, and so it's really taking that philosophy back to the foods we have and the foods we we and the and the beverages we drink, and saying how can they be more natural? How can we be more naturally complex to be better for our bodies? But at the same time, affordable, um, affordable technology, um, so that companies can use them, people can buy them. Um, so we've we've done this technology already in Australia; it's available. Uh, we, we've been uh, succeeded really well in Malaysia. It's got sixty percent market share in Malaysia. Uh, we're we're just launching in Africa at the moment. Uh, we've launched in Central America. We've got partners in Brazil and in uh, Thailand, and we're currently working on um, uh, launching in India as well. So. You know, just trying to globalize this solution to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. And uh, we just heard, yeah, we just heard this week we're we're finalists for the United Nations, um, uh, who have got a a best sustainable business awards, um, and looking for the best fifty sustainable businesses around the world. And so we're, we're finalists for that this week. That's so. amazing! Congratulations. I'm in advertising. Don't believe the hype. I mean, the, <laughs> uh, two. Sounds like you're gearing up for underachieving yet again with this business. And look, um, I think they are just blessed to have you on board, Matt. Um, everything you do seems to just thrive and that's a hell of a skill to have, I think. Um, we're nearly at the end of our podcast and it went really fast. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. In fact, I do. So um, we'll probably leave it there. Um, I just wanted to also big, big um, heartfelt uh, love out to Nikki and her family who are hopefully celebrating her father's life over this um, next few days. But I also really want to thank you, Matt, for stepping up and coming in at, at such late notice. I know you're a hectically busy man and you've got a gorgeous family to look after as well. So I really appreciate that you shared some of your knowledge and um, the gift you have as a businessman and as a leader. And I just think everyone's going to walk away with a lot of lot of thinking and a lot of ideas and a lot of strategies to move forward. So um, you've, you've been fantastic as always. 
um, so real, really big, big hug and thanks, my beautiful brother. They're too kind, and, and thanks for the hype and the, and the PR. And if I need a new PR agent, I'll come to you. That's too kind. Oh, not a problem. I'll send you the bill. I'm very good at making other people look fantastic out of my skill range, really. <laughs> hey, um, I do, I do think your your fifteen and focus, your 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 sprints to to get focused and, and high energy for for ideas solutions is brilliant. And I think if your listeners haven't looked at that, they should. It's it's a really good way to get an intense way of really taking steps forward. And this piece we talked about earlier, which is, you know, the 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 speed of life, the ability to make decisions. I think your 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 fifteen and focus is is definitely a way to 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 unleash and unlock potential. So I'd encourage your listeners to look into that. Oh, thanks, my gorgeous brother. A mutual admiration society um, continues on in this family. Yeah, to say how. <laughs> Did I say how good looking we both are? <laughs> of course. <laughs> good gene pool. So thank you for listening to another one of our shows. Nikki and I are so pleased that you're dropping by and having some fun and learning along the way. You can reach out to us at nikkimackie at peopleassets.com.au at hellosarahgodfrey at gmail.com at our websites, nikkimackie.com.au, peopleassets.com.au, sarahgodfrey.com.au, um, at our Insta, sarahgodfreyau and nikkimackie91, and on our LinkedIn sites, Sarah Godfrey and Nikki Mackie. Hope you enjoyed it all. Catch you next time. So that wraps up another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to follow us and read the blogs, The Extra Sip. You can uh, share, follow and sponsor us just by contacting us. Find us on Instagram at The Business Hangover, at Sarah Godfrey AU and at Nikki Mackie 92 You can follow us on our LinkedIn at Sarah Godfrey and at Nikki Mackie and on our web business uh, pages, peopleassets.com.au, nikkimackie.com.au, sarahgodfrey.com.au and movingmindsets.com.au. Okay, until next time.